Hi, I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today is a really exciting show, because if you have been keeping up, this is the end, the finale for our series that's gone on for a long time now with the 11 pre-linguistic skills that all toddlers master, no matter whether they are late talkers, like our little friends that we work with in early intervention and in pediatric speech therapy programs, or even children who talk on time go through these same prerequisites. So it's such an important set of skills for we as professionals to master ourselves so that we understand the progression and the sequence and all the things that have to happen before kids can realistically learn how to communicate with language, understanding what words mean, and then certainly using words to communicate. But there are actually 11 really identifiable pre-linguistic skills that are so important. And today we're talking about that final skill, which is initiates interaction with others. But like I've done on all the previous uh, 11 or 12 shows in this series already, we've reviewed these because if it's your first time joining me, if this is the very first YouTube you've ever found or the very first podcast that you've ever listened to, you're kind of you're kind of coming in late. And so I want you to hear all the 11 skills so that you can think about it for children that you work with, if you're a therapist, or if you're a parent, if you can think about this list for your own child. And let me just tell you, these these skills are really the missing pieces that so many of our little late-talking friends and toddlers with any kind of diagnosed language delay or disorder, these are the skills that are foundational. So these are the skills that no matter... If it, you know, and here's how you can also look at it as a therapist. If you've got this constellation of skills, it probably means diagnostically this could be going on. And the same thing, and so we can, with, with other diagnoses, I'm thinking specifically about autism. If a child has difficulty with responding to people, skill number two, has difficulty with a joint attention, skill number five, has a lot of difficulty learning how to play with a variety of toys appropriately, skill number six, that's, or, and when his, his, Expressive language skills are probably higher on standardized tests than even his receptive language skills would be. Those, that constellation, those missing pre-linguistic skills or skills that are maybe not missing but weaker, certainly not where we would want them to be, we know just by looking at these 11 skills that, oh my goodness, this is probably what's going on with this child. And we may not have isolated it like that had we not looked at it. Same thing with apraxia. If we have a kid who's not vocalizing purposefully, but he's trying to use a lot of gestures uh, and his receptive language is really good. And this would be straight verbal apraxia, not apraxia in addition to autism or apraxia in addition to something else. This would be straight apraxia. We could look at a certain set of prelinguistic skills and say, oh my goodness, he's missing these. This, this, I need to look at apraxia. This, this is closely linked to children who go on to be diagnosed with apraxia. And so you really can do this with this set of 11 skills. Now I haven't formalized the, if they have, this is this is weak. Look at this. I haven't done that. Uh, and if you're a therapist and you're, you know, already writing down, where's where that? Where's that? Let me get that. I, d- I haven't done that because as therapists, we really, really still need to be able to individualize assessment and treatment. And so you still need to look at this and that. And I certainly would never want a parent to go in the wrong direction, just kind of based on on that. So let me just 
say, <laughs> as a therapist, you should be able to really use your clinical judgment here to think about that and sort of make your own list and come up with your own conclusions as you're learning this list. But let's get back to today's topic, which is I'm going to run through these 11 skills and then I want to talk about in detail the 11th skill, how we teach children to inter- uh, initiate interaction with others. So the first skill was way back at the beginning. We talked about helping a child learn to respond to events in the environment. And remember that we said that it's a pretty significant, usually sensory or neurological difference. So there's usually a medical diagnosis that would tell you that that's why or explain why the child is having difficulty responding to sound, responding to light, responding to any kind of uh, visual information. Is he alerting? Those kinds of things. And so that's skill number one. Skill number two is response to people. And all of us learn how to communicate by interacting with other people. And so when we can't respond to that, when somebody else is talking to us, We know that, again, the core skill for communicating is really, really disrupted and different. And again, children who have difficulty consistently responding to other people, they don't make eye contact like we would expect. They seem busy and self-isolating, kind of doing their own thing all the time. It's real hard to get their attention and show them things or, or get them to look at you and really pay attention. Again, that skill number two lets us really, really know that a child is at risk for, um, getting diagnosed with autism as we investigate and uncover the layers and figure out exactly what his core deficits are. But that was skill number two, response to people. Skill number three is an extension of that, begins turn-taking. So once a child starts to really respond to you, does he want to stay with you? Does he want to keep that interaction going? That's called reciprocity, that back-and-forth communication flow. And so that really happens not only in skill number two when they're responding, but it's an extension of that or a maturation of that process when they begin uh, taking turns. And again, this is something they do non-verbally before they start to do it with words. So they'll sit and exchange toys with you or um, you can trade an object back and forth or all these kind of little things that they do non-verbally. They start to really use their eye gaze non-verbally again to kind of take a turn with you, like looking at you like, yes, it's your turn to speak to me. Let me let me get back here and, and then back to you. And when a kid starts to do that, Usually he's got a longer attention span, which is number four, skill number four. He can stay with an activity long enough to do that. So turn-taking has evolved. And then it evolves even more with what I just described when a child learns how to shift and share his attention. So, again, that's joint attention. And kids, again, who ha- who are at risk for autism really, really struggle with that joint attention piece. They may have fantastic attention to something that they love, like their iPad or a particular moving part on a toy, but you try to get them to do something else that's a non-preferred activity for them, or, or maybe it's just an auditory activity alone, don't have any any interest, any motivation in staying because that's hard for them. And so, again, this is where kind of knowing these skills and how they cluster around a diagnosis can really, really help you if you're a therapist. And as a parent, again, you need to know this information just to explain to yourself oh my goodness, we've got a lot of red flags here, or these are the skills that are missing, these are the skills that I have got to figure out how to help my child strengthen so that he can begin to make progress and learn how to understand and use words to communicate. Now we're all the way up to skill number six, which is plays appropriately with a variety of toys, and play is super important for toddlers and young preschoolers because it's how they learn everything, it's how their cognitive skills really advance, how they learn how to problem solve, (coughs) pardon me, 
how they uh, again begin to remember how they begin to make um, different associations and different arrangements even with toys and remember what we said about um, initiation and about turn taking is that it always begins non-verbally pardon me before a child can do that verbally and so language you know is kind of a verbal extension of a child's cognitive skills and so he's got to learn these things again in real concrete ways during playing with objects before he can start to join ideas conceptually and so that's why play is so important because again it really sets the foundation for language skill number seven is receptive language so that means that a child understands early words what they mean and then because of that he starts to follow directions so when we have an 18 month old who is not following very simple very familiar directions like go get your shoes or bring me that book or where's daddy you know not looking or trying to find daddy that's a big 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 problem because by 18 months children should always be able to do that and so when we have a two-year-old who's not following directions we know there's an underlying receptive language problem he may not be talking and we just may be focused on the whole talking piece when really he's not saying anything because he does not understand how to use words. He doesn't he does not link meaning yet so that he cannot do what you say. And so when you have a kid again that's eighteen months and not following directions, that's why he's not talking. If he's two, if he's four, if he's fourteen, <laughs> if he's not following verbal directions or can't not not, but can't do it. That's a problem, and again, look no further from why the child isn't talking yet. You've got to get those receptive language skills bumped up so that a child can begin to use words meaningfully. All right, number eight, a super practical uh, pre-linguistic skill is vocalizes purposefully, and none of us learn how to talk without knowing how to use our voices, and for some children, that turning on the voice piece or initiating that is really, really hard. It could be a, a medical diagnosis that you see that affects their whole body that's pretty obvious, like a muscle tone difference, um, or it could be... Um, an injury that's happened, even like a cerebral injury, like a stroke, it could be that they have apraxia, which again, there's no physical presence of that, no obvious neuromuscular difference there, but for whatever reason, they just cannot vocalize on request. Now, they can do it usually independently, but it's that imitative piece, that copy you piece that's really, really hard. Now, some kids with apraxia can vocalize on request, and so if you're watching this and you're a parent and you're thinking, well, that therapist said he has apraxia and he can do that, so that's the, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying in its, in its most significant, most severe kinds of issue, that's something we look at. But apraxia is not the only one, uh, the only diagnostic reason that a kid can't vocalize. There are many, 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 many other things, structural issues. So again, but we've got to figure that out. And a lot of times a speech-language pathologist is a really, really important part of that team to help decide exactly what's going on speech-language-wise. And so super, super important pre-linguistic skill. You've got to be able to use your voice and make noise before you're able to use your voice to produce words. Okay, skill number nine is imitation. And if you have followed my work at all, you know how often I talk about how important imitation is. And again, that's the ability to copy what you see somebody else do. And that's how kids learn everything. They watch us. 
they they imitate they copy a child sees mom wash the high chair tray and at at 15 18 months what does he want to do he wants to grab the wipe or grab the rag and do it himself or he sees you at home when you are um unloading the dishwasher he wants to unload the dishwasher too you might see him try to kind of pretend that and act some of that out in his little play routines and so imitation is just such an important skill it's so predictive and uh, evidence-based practice the milestone that we should be looking at as speech language pathologists is by 18 months how a child imitates is going to gives us a lot of information about his language development at 36 months and the next skill does the same thing uses early gestures so we look at kids how are they gesturing meaning how are they waving how are they pointing how are they clapping how are they nodding for yes and shaking their heads for no how are they doing those things those two things imitation and gestures are also again evidence-based research-based telling us that what a kid's doing at 18 months it's not that it, it, it's just a predictive. If a kid's struggling with that at 18 months, he's going to struggle with it at, 30, at 36 months or at three. If he's not struggling with it at 18 months, he's not going to be struggling with it at, at 36 months. And that's not to say that intervention can't make a difference because my goodness, why would any of us do this job if intervention and therapy didn't make a difference? But at the same time, you really can look at that and say, oh, we better get on it because this is a problem at 18 months. He's not following directions. He's not and gestures he's not imitating you know that's a big 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 developmental problem and if that delay is there at 18 months and and it goes on to 24 months and 30 months and 36 months then you have a three-year-old who's not talking and in any <laughs> setting that's a big deal to have a three-year-old who's nonverbal. it doesn't matter if you're at school or daycare or wherever three is very late to talk and so um know those things and that's why this is so important again as therapists so that you can share these things with parents and not to alarm them not to rob them of hope but just to be realistic and say hey this is a big deal again we've got to get on this and do something all right the 11th skill is where we are today and that is initiation how does a child initiate so what does that mean what is initiation and so initiation means that a child takes the lead and letting you know what his or her intentions are she works to get your attention she wants you to respond to her now typically developing toddlers long or babies long before they begin to talk are initiating they figure out pretty quickly if i cry she's going to come and then they know then they start to realize oh really it's just if i make kind of a whine she's going to my mom's going to come in here and then they realize oh if i say mama she gets in here quick and so do you see that progression how they learn that and again that's a cognitive progression that they are realizing their their problem solving is becoming more and more and more mature and again they did it with vocalizations kids can even do that non-verbally too and so the initiation piece is so predictive of whether a child is typically developing or whether there's a problem and so again even with children who are typically developing they learn this skill to get somebody else's attention and to take that lead and to go first they don't always have to respond to somebody else it's not always up to somebody else they become more of an active communicator rather than a passive communicator and again this is happening through that first year so when we get to a toddler or a preschooler when we have a two-year-old when we have 
a three and a half year old who really is not initiating. And that doesn't mean just with words, but even with gestures, if he can't point to let you know, or, you know, do something to get your attention so that you're going to notice him from across the room or whatever it is, or if he hasn't learned how to use a device to talk for him, a speech generating device, or to give you a picture or to do some kind of sign to let you know, you know, Hey, I've got a need here and I need you to meet it. Uh, that that really, again, is really, really predictive of just how serious and how significantly his communication system is developing. And so it's also a pretty big factor even among the population of children who have communication delays and disorders because even when a kid is just a late talker, just meaning that there's just an expressive piece, but all his other pieces he understands words, he can start to use gestures to communicate what he wants. Those kinds of kids are initiating. And generally kids, we talked about apraxia before or suspected childhood apraxia of speech. Generally those kids are really, really initiate as well. And again, this would be kids who that apraxia is not their only or primary diagnosis. A lot of times uh, 63% of children with autism also have apraxia. So a lot of times it's not just kind of, it can be a standalone diagnosis or it's a comorbidity. And so you've got to kind of think about that too. But children who just have apraxia know how to initiate. And so when if you're a parent and you have a kid right now that you're realizing, you know, he really doesn't work to get my attention. Or or he might only have one mode of that, like maybe leading. That's kind of a classic thing that toddlers with autism do. And we talked about this a lot in last week's show in 395, where we talked about understands and uses gestures. That's the only way they know how to get your attention and the only way they really know how to communicate with you. And you want to, it's positive. You want to say, well, thank goodness they can do that because that is a way, it is a door in. However, they're really using that nonverbal communication um, in a different kind of way. There's a difference in that there. And we talked about last week how a child who leads you doesn't realize sometimes if there's anything connected to that big old hand they just know that you're going to be able to operate the toy for them you're going to, they're going to put your hand on the refrigerator uh, door handle to open the door for them they are using your hand as a tool they are not really using they're using it like they use a hammer to hit the ball down the hole in the toy they're not using your hand as communication there and again that's a hard sell for some parents you know I've kind of talked myself into a hole sometimes that (laughs) trying to do that explain that to a parent when I just would really think oh why don't I just teach them some different ways to use some gestures and try to communicate first and then they'll see the difference and then we can talk about this but until then let's don't knock the one little skill that they are doing (laughs) that's communicative and so this is a big big deal when kids don't initiate and lots of our children with cognitive delays meaning there are significant neurological differences that affect how they are able to learn information and process information. And parents kind of think about this in terms of how smart a kid is. We used to call this mental retardation. We don't really call it that anymore because it's not as politically correct then uh you know the term now is cognitive delay or cognitive difference or learning difference but really it's the same thing there's some brain damage or brain difference that really causes a child not to be able to learn as you would expect him to learn and language 
is a part of that. And so again, when a kid is not initiating, when he doesn't know how to take the lead, a lot of times that really does mean you know, there's a cognitive problem and there's a social problem here and there's a language problem. So remember how we talked about at the beginning that sometimes this constellation of symptoms or characteristics or weaknesses can really put you on the right path diagnostically. And this is important for those of us who are in early intervention because you know we're, we're the frontline people. A lot of times we're, we're the people who see the family the most because speech is usually, you know, kids, parents want their kids to walk and then they want them to talk. And so speech, after, after a child has been delayed and starts really, really walking, you know, speech kind of becomes the primary. Or certainly there are so many children who don't have gross motor issues who are walking, who are fast, who are coordinated, but they still have these language learning issues. You know, certainly for those kids... Um, you know, we've got to just kind of look at, at, at what's going on with that and, you know, why they're not initiating and, and what's really, really going on with them. Kind of lost my train of thought there, but that's okay. Let's, let's just move on. Let's move on and talk about something else. All right, so we have talked about why initiating is so, so, so important. And now let's move on and talk about how we can teach a child to initiate. And remember, again, most children, even those with speech-language delays, if this is just a straight expressive language late talker issue, they are not going to have problems initiating. They figured that out. If this is just a, kind of a mixed expressive-receptive language disorder, but the cognitive skills are moving along, they are not going to have problems initiating. This initiating piece really, really does happen more often with children who have social issues and cognitive issues than any other um, any other kind of major diagnostic group. Now, certainly kids with motor, if their motor has affected their speech sound system, they're going to need another way to initiate. But thankfully, even those kids a lot of times figure out, again, we've, we're identifying them early and earlier, and we get a system going for them, or they just get... They, just, they figure out compensations. And so certainly the motor component can be there as well. But it, uh, let me just say, it really, when you have a lack of initiation, it really indicates that there's something more going on than late talking. And that's my point there that I want you to understand. Okay, so when is a toddler developmentally ready to work on initiating? Early. So even though this is skill number 11 in the prelinguistic skills, it still comes in pretty, pretty early, and I have it at the end, and I really would debate about moving it back kind of to the beginning and moving it back when I'm talking about skill number three under begins turn-taking, and, you know, I could have listed these skills in a lot of different ways, but initiating is not the last skill to come in here, <laughs> so if you are listening to this and you're a parent and you're thinking, oh, well, that's the only one he doesn't have. That's probably not true because initiating, again, you would be doing so many of the other things. You would be using gestures. If you're not initiating, you're probably not using gestures. You're probably not vocalizing. You're probably not, um, well, those are the two really obvious ones. There's certainly some other things that could be occurring, especially if there's a cognitive issue. But at the same time, I just want you to know this initiation piece really does come in a lot earlier. Don't think that this is just going to be a really isolated case. It's usually not. And so that, that's the point I wanted to make uh, with that. All right, so how do we teach a child how to take the lead? How do we teach a child how to go first and get your attention? 
There are a lot of things we can do. First of all, we have to make the shift so that a child can understand that it's his turn to communicate, that it's his turn to initiate, that he's got to let you know what's going on. And a lot of times with children who are not initiating, it is so easy to really, really reinforce that passiveness that they've learned because as parents we are nurturing and we want to jump in and take care of them and we want to meet their needs and again thank God for that that's why God made us parents that's why God gives human children parents because we need that Uh, but at the same time kids have to learn that they have to do something to get something so that they have to let you know that something is going on that they need um, help with. And so anytime that we see a child who is passive, one of the first things that we need to do is talk to his parents about waiting, just waiting to see if there's any indication that a child wants something. And then we have to really, uh, again, see just how he begins to express that desire. And so that expression of desire is what we call that initiating piece. And initiating is communicating. And so until we have that, until we have him looking at us like fussing a little bit and moving around and beginning to make some noise and stir and be physically uncomfortable, he's got to learn that he's... He has to let us know in some way. And again, we talked about that they can do it with gestures or physical um, manifestations of that initiation. So they're using their eye gaze. They're looking at you and then they're looking back at what they want. Or even they're just looking at what they want and then you notice them. That's how we start to reinforce that. And so again, it could be non-verbally. It could be with a vocalization that's not a word. So we talked about a whine or a grunt or some kind of little sound that lets you know. And again, typically developing babies learn this pretty quickly. This is what they start doing, you know, between six and nine months. It's really making those intentional vocalizations so that you can hear those things. But this all really starts with teaching a parent not to jump in too soon to meet a child's needs and that we have to help them learn that they've got to get that first step going. And so let me say on the on the flip side of that, there are children who don't initiate anymore just because their environmental response has been it's it just stinks. And that those are parents who, again, that we think about neglect or we think about deprivation. But I'm going to tell you the truth. We're seeing it a lot with parents who are really, really addicted to social media or addicted to video games or a, certainly parents who are addicted to a substance who are just checked out, period. And, and again, that's where we think about that environmental neglect. But, you know, we're seeing it now even with pretty people who are pretty high functioning <laughs> that are just really addicted to their phones or their tablets or that they're just paying very little attention to what's going on around them because the pull of that screen is so magnetic to them. And so we have to think about that too, that sometimes a child doesn't learn to initiate because he's learned not to initiate. He's learned that that doesn't really matter. I've told this story a lot on the on the show, and I certainly have talked about it in um, – a couple of the courses that I teach, which are on DVD if you're interested in that, and one, one of the things that happened to me is when um, several years ago, gosh, it's probably been 10 years ago now, I lived, my, my former neighborhood, the neighbors who lived next door to me were foster parents, and they um, had a little girl who they got when she was turning two, 
but she had been so neglected that she didn't even cry vocally. They would just notice they would look across the room and just startle because they would see a little tear or two running down her face and they wouldn't have known anything was even wrong and the dad had um he was a a minister a preacher but he also was going back to school to be a therapist an aba therapist and so he had enough (laughs) and the and the mom was wonderful she was a teacher i think she had been a teacher and she had retired um but they really really had to didn't take them very long to put together, you know, this, the parenting situations that the child had been in before. I mean, she was a smart little girl who could vocalize. I mean, once we got her in therapy, oh, her, I loved working with her. Her progress was just lightning speed because as soon as the parents changed what they did with her, now they had to be really intentional about it because she was pretty passive. I mean, they had to really... They had to work to make sure that they were constantly attending to her. And then, then they sort of had to back off a little bit. So she had to learn how to use her voice, which is what we're talking about today. But, oh, she just made such good progress. But, again, the parents had to really recognize what was going on with her. Some foster parents or anybody might have seen a little girl like that and said, oh, she is so good. She doesn't even make a whimper. She is good. And so isn't that sad? that she really wasn't reinforced for communicating and that she learned because she was smart, hey, don't even bother. Nobody's coming, okay? And so um, we have to think about that, and we have to think about, again, that there might be a reason here. And the first way that we helped that little girl learn how to initiate was to really make the shift so that we waited on her to do that. Now, you can go too far with that. You can wait too long on a child to initiate that he kind of forgets what he's doing or just it's so hard for him. He just loses interest. And so you have to be careful about that so that you're not waiting too long because that can be just as much of a disaster. And I've done that with kids in therapy. They obviously want something but I'm waiting a little bit to jump in, and then you can kind of see them turn, and I think, shoot, I missed it. I missed it. I should have given him a cue. I should have given him some support, and this is the next thing that we're going to talk about. We have to find the balance in looking for when a child is almost initiating and then really, really reinforce that so that we teach him to use that as a way to request. And then we do that by rewarding immediately. So in that example, that horrible example that I just gave when I might miss in therapy that a child is trying to initiate with me because I'm waiting too long See, what I might do in that situation is when I notice, oh, he's looking at that, and that I'm expecting him to look back at me for joint attention, which is a fabulous goal, which is certainly something we would want him to do. We would want him to use his eye gaze or his eye contact to be able to direct my attention. That's a great way to initiate. But if I wait too long and wait on him to look at me, he might not look at me. So what are some things I can do? Well, it's a lot easier to change me than it is to change a kid, right? And so what am I going to do? I'm going to jump in his line of vision. So when I see him looking at something right there and I'm right here, I shift. I scoot over. So he has to look at me and I say something like, you were looking at that dog. Do you want that dog? Look at the dog. Yes, you showed me. You showed me with your eyes. And again, can every kid understand this as you're saying it? No, we know that we work with children with receptive language delays too, but you are setting the expectation and you are doing something to help that child learn how to use his eye gaze. And then you're saying that about the dog as you're getting the dog toy or whatever it is that he's wanted. I just use that as an example. And so 
You've got to do that where you think, how can I jump in there? How can I teach this? And so you ought, we're going to talk about this a little bit later about how we, then we start to bump that up. But for right now, we're just trying to find that balance. And we're trying to see, what is he almost doing? What can he sort of do? And a lot of times as therapists, we'll just check that skill off and say, well, he used eye gaze, but we don't think, and, and then we try to move a kid up to a gesture from there without thinking, oh my goodness, joint attention should come in first, or, 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 let's teach him a whole bunch of gestures to use right here. He's using eye gaze, let's see if we can coordinate a reach with it. Let's see what, what other kind of motor movement, let's see if we can teach him how to lean and then look at us. Let's see if, because he's leaning, let's, let's see if he'll start to, uh, 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 vocalize or do something with that. Or was he gonna not only reach but gimme fingers and so that's what we do and, and again we're going to talk about that in a minute I don't mean to get so ahead of myself but you got to look at what's almost happening when they're initiating with that and then the other thing that I said is you've got to reinforce that really quickly and that's not by talking about it for five minutes you know I said that you would say oh yes I saw you look at the dog and you looked at me that's so good but as you're doing that you're getting the toy so that you're giving them what they really really want they don't really want to hear you blab on and on and on they want to get that reward or they want to get what they wanted and that's what teaches them hey I got to do something to get something next time I want something why don't I look at it a little bit longer to see if she's going to do the same thing and so again kids can't kids don't really conceptualize it in that way with all those words but they do learn it I mean that is behavior they do learn how to direct their vision like that and that is what happens but you've got to make the reinforcer or the reward happen so quickly that they do begin to make that connection and make that association the other thing that we have to do when we're Working on initiation like that is making sure that the payoff for initiating is worth it. And so essentially, the only thing any of us work for is something that we want, right? And so why do you go to work every day? For a lot of us, most of us, most people, it's to get the paycheck, right? You wouldn't really do the work unless you were going to get paid for it, okay? Think about that kind of in terms of a child, if talking has been really, really hard for him and communicating, then you back it up and say, well, it's really not just talking, it's all of it. And communicating has been really, really hard for him. And then you tease it back to initiating, going first, taking the lead has been really, really hard for him. Do you think he's just going to do it for something that he's eh about, that he's so-so about? Absolutely not. He's got to have a big enough motivator, a big enough reason to want to do something that's been so incredibly difficult for him. And how do you know it's been difficult? Because he would have already done it. He would have already managed to know how to communicate if he could. He would have. Don't buy that baloney that a kid is just holding out on talking, that he is just trying to make your life miserable by not saying a word. Don't buy the baloney that when a parent brings him to you or when you go to him and they say, he was just talking a blue streak. It must be you. He just doesn't like you very much. Don't buy all that stuff. I mean, that could be true. You could make yourself more fun and have better things to do. And you could just be a bump on a log trying to pass yourself off as a speech therapist. Don't do that. But at the same time, you have really, really, really got to make it worth it for this kid so that he wants to initiate, so that he wants to try, because otherwise it's just easier to stay the same. And so you've got to really, really think about your motivators here and think about 
what you're using for that. And again, you've got you've got to really look at these situations. You know, when a kid has something like when he has a broken toy, he is primed to initiate with you. When he has an empty cup, he is primed <laughs> to initiate with you. There's a reason, right? When his diaper is dirty, and again, if you've if he has a history of saying the dirty diapers or he has sensory issues and that doesn't bother him, but at the same time, there are going to be kids like that, but there will also be kids who that has not been the normal experience for. And that's probably not the very best example. But my, my point here is they've got to have a reason to want to initiate with you, and then you've got to recognize that they have a reason. And if they don't have a reason, what do you have to do? You have to give them a reason to communicate with you. And we're going to talk about that too, where we are talking about how to sabotage and not in a bad, uh, destructive, uh, mean-spirited way, but just so, again, for the kids who aren't initiating so that we give them a reason to do that. But here at this stage where we're just talking about finding out if there is there some way he's sort of trying to communicate with me? Is there some initiation that I'm missing here? Just start to watch him. Start to say, okay, now his cup is about to be empty. He's on that 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 drink box that drink uh, box, that drink pouch that he's drinking. Oh, he's getting to the end of that. Let's see. What's he gonna do? What does he do? Is he throwing it on the floor? Is he throwing himself back screaming because he's at the end? Does he just start to fiddle with it? And is, is there any hint that he, if I go over and put my hand out, will he give that to me? Either saying, hey, I'm done, thanks so much, go handle that for me, Miss Waitress. Or if is he just not even knowing what to do with it? And so you, you or, or is he giving it to you like, could I please have another? Can I get some more of that? I'm still thirsty. And so you look at those situations and you, you wait just long enough to say, what is he going to do to let me know that he understands this or that he doesn't understand this? And then if he doesn't understand it, what can I do to get in there to help him understand it? Or if he does understand initiating, if I think he's just right there on the verge, what can I do to fan this flame? What can I do to help him increase his ability to initiate in this way? And again, you might find out that, oh, he's about to throw this across the room as his gesture to let me know that he's finished. What's going to happen if I just start to put out my hand and get there more quickly? Will he put it in my hand? Will he give it to me? Okay, you won't do it, but will he do it if I take his little hand and help him put it in my hand? See, that's initiating. And you're providing that physical cue and that tactile support to do it, but you're teaching him, hey, I don't have to launch my sippy cup across the floor. I can give it to my mom because she's going to be right here. And then later, you 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 transition that to let's put the cup down on the floor, on the table, wherever, or you transition it to, hey, mom is standing five feet away. Walk over here and give me your sippy cup. And then you transition that that to mom's further away from you. Walk over here and give me your sippy cup. And then you transition it to, hey, when you're finished with that, let's learn how to put it in the sink. And so it's all that one tiny step up. And I'm going to give you lots of examples for these as we go through the rest of the show because I think it's so, so important. But again, my point here at this stage in treatment with initiating is you've got to figure out what they're about to do that might lead you to a perfect opportunity to teach them 
how to initiate and what can happen next. And so remember too, uh, our next point here is that initiating begins non-verbally. And so we've talked about this a lot, that kids have to do things non-verbally before they have to do it verbally. We talked about that a lot back at skill number, pre-linguistic skill number six with play and how the reason they have to learn how to play with toys is so they can get that concrete mastery of that concept and they have to have the concrete mastery of the concept so that they can get the symbolic mastery. And the symbolic mastery means what? It means words. <laughs> and so, again, unless you get there non-verbally, you're never going to get there verbally. And so that's how we have to remember with initiation. A kid is never going to scream, hey, mom, can I have some spaghetti? When he hasn't learned that he can use some gestures, that he can tug on her, that he can can take her and point, that he can ver- uh, vocalize, uh, 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 or he can start to say, Getty for spaghetti. You know, it gets there. It has to get there in a really sequential progression. And so that's what we want to be sure that we're doing um, with the child. And remember, when he is initiating with a nonverbal response, like we talked about with eye gaze or like a gesture, we got to reward it just like it's a word. I mean, we've got to really, really get that down to that nitty-gritty i got to increase this behavior, so the only way that I can increase this initiating behavior is to make him want to do it more, and the only way that he's going to want to do it more is if he has more things to request, more opportunities to request things that he really, really wants, and so that's what we talked about a lot with um, the motivators there. All right, so what do we do? Once we've learned how a child is probably initiating and how we're starting to work on it, then you give them lots of practice at that level during everyday activities to uh, do together. And so you can't just have a child practice this kind of thing in therapy with you as the therapist and then not give parents tons of ways to work on this at home. And that's why this whole early intervention push to go to a more consultative model started in the first place because a lot of times we can get kids to do things in the clinic and we could get them to do things for us because we're professionals that parents we don't we we're skipping the step of teaching so now we've swung the pendulum back so far the other way that as therapists we're not even getting kids to do the skill anymore we've just skipped to let's teach a parent so that they can sort of maybe try and see i think there's a there's a really important hybrid approach where we are really really teaching the skill and getting the skill and we're doing the parental training piece so that they, we've not only seen that the child can do it, we know what strategies were most effective, and then we paired that with the child, got a lot of success, and as we were doing that, we taught the parent how to do it too. And so that's really the best way to use that. So if you're in a program where you're trying to function to just do parent coaching and it's not successful, back up, girl. <laughs> Put your therapy pants back on and get some things going with that kid directly. And again, that may be so, I may be the only person saying that to you in your whole professional life right now, but it really is the truth. I mean, we really do have to to teach kids how to do it and then teach parents how we taught their kid how to do it. And that's going to help it get easier for parents. Don't, that's why they, they're bringing their kid to speech therapy for you anyway. If they were going to be figuring out how to do it on their own, they're going to be going to teach me to talk and not even calling you. <laughs> they're just going to be looking at the internet and taking advice. And some parents can do that, but for a lot of our kids, they need that professional contact with you. I mean, they, I have families right now that they really could read the same information on the website, but still not be able to do it with their kids because their kids are hard. They have significant 
language issues. They have significant motoric issues. They have significant social interaction issues. And so they, they need that information and they need that person there saying, okay, here's what we do and here's how we do it and watch me do it. And look, you do it too. Oh, try it this way. Oh, try it this way. They need that. They need all of that. So don't let anybody talk you out of that. All right. So back to this strategy. What are we going to do? We're going to teach a kid how to initiate, how to do this kind of thing with us. When we're looking for these almost initiations, we're going to build on that. We're going to get a great response going. And at the same time, we're going to tell a parent, hey, here's what I'm doing. And here's what I want you to do at home. So let's get, walk through this example. And I haven't said this yet on this show. All This information, this whole series, these whole uh we're on show number 12 in this series now with skill number 11 because we did an introduction show and that was back at 385 if you want the whole introduction but this um information is from my therapy manual let's talk about talking and it is so comprehensive can you see it is 337 pages and so if you have a child who is not talking that you are as a therapist are just at your wits end that you're thinking there is something that i'm missing here Let's talk about talking will help you figure that out. And there's a great checklist that you get in the back of the book that walks you through all these 11 skills, how the skill looks in real life. So you're looking, you're thinking shifts and shares joint attention. As a therapist, you know what that means, but you might not even know how to really explain that to a parent. And so it says the child shifts his attention between an object and you while you're sharing the same focus. And so it tells you how the skill looks. It tells you why it's important, meaning why does a kid have to know how to do that? It tells you why it's important for language development. And then your beginning strategy. So it's such a great treatment tool to use with parents. I, I use it all the time. All of these books are how I still play in therapy every single day. And so they are so valuable for you as a therapist or for a parent. And again, if you are just really, really not understanding what's going on with your child, or you are a therapist and you're thinking, there has got to be a better way. There's some, I'm missing something here. What else could it be? This tool is powerful for you. So I hope that you'll get that. And you can get more information about that in the link below. If you are watching on YouTube or if you're listening on Blog Talk Radio or uh, iTunes or your podcast app, whatever you use, um, search Teach me to talk and go to my website and look up. Let's talk about talking. I could probably just Google that and get uh, information about buying that book because it will really, I mean, I get emails almost every day from therapists and parents that say, this really revolutionized what I was doing. I was working at a level that's way too hard for my child, or I thought it was just about talking and he has these other issues. And when we address these issues, oh boy, he is coming along now. He is making great progress and it never, we never would have been able to do that had I not bought that book. And a lot of times these are parents of kids who are already in therapy. And again, I was telling you before, I ha I'm working with a lot of families now that they are fantastic. They are wonderful, wonderful parents, wonderful mothers. But still, because of the complexity of their child's needs, they can take the information, but they still need somebody else helping them. They still need another set of eyes on that little baby, their child, and saying, here's what we've got to do, or here's how, here's this strategy, but let me show you how it works. So let me show you how we can tweak it for your child because she's doing this, and this is actually a higher level, or this is actually not quite what you're trying to do. Let's try this first. And so that is so, so important too. But, but this information that we're talking about right now is how to lead a child to practice request. And this is such a good example. And this is on page 300 of Let's Talk About Talking in the chapter on initiating interaction. And so we can set up an opportunity 
And let me just sort of walk through this example with you. So we talked about how we do a little waiting. So let's use the example of a mom who fixes her child a drink when he looks at the refrigerator. What else could she have done and what else might her child have done as a result if she did something differently? So what would have happened if mom had waited a little bit longer? So when her child is starting to scan the kitchen there, what would happen if mom just kind of waited before she went into the kitchen? Might he have focused his gaze on the refrigerator? Might he have looked back at her? And again, this is sometimes just a split second wait that a mom could do like that. What, did, what would have happened if mom had stood up and pointed to the refrigerator and said something like, the refrigerator? Is that what you want? What's in there? What do you want in there? And then nodded in agreement or some way to indicate that her child, yes, I see you looking at that fridge. I know what you mean, but let's get there together. Let me teach you a higher way to request that. Let me help you move toward talking because I'm going to learn how to wait a little bit and then I'm going to learn how to use my own gestures to help you you learn that you've got to do that so that you can really, really communicate with me. And so what would have happened if after she had done that, after he had scanned and she had waited a little bit and then he, she waited for him to look at the fridge and he did. And as soon as he looked at the fridge, she said, the refrigerator, you want something in the refrigerator? What could that be? What would happen then if she offered her hand so that she held it down to her child and said, as an imitation, like, come on, let's go together. Let's go in there. Would he have walked with her to the fridge? Would he have accompanied her in there? If he's non-mobile yet, if there's a motoric issue, could she have then scooped him up and said, hey, do you want to go with me? Or pushed him if he's in a chair or uh, whatever they're using for mobility to help at home. Uh, even, you know, whatever. So what would have happened then? What would have happened when they got there if instead of doing all that, she then had opened the door and expectantly said, what do you want? Do you want something to drink? What is it? What would have happened? Do you think that there's a chance he might have looked then at the specific drink that he wants? Is there a chance that he would have pointed or that he would have reached toward the milk so that she could say definitively, oh my goodness, you want the milk? Yes, I will get you the milk. What would have happened if she then, if he didn't point, he didn't do that. She just waited for him to look and he didn't really have a definitive discriminatory look that she could really say, oh, he wants this, not that. What then if she took out two things? What if she said, you want juice or do you want, you know, you want orange juice or apple juice or do you want orange juice or milk or orange juice or chocolate milk, whatever. What would have happened if she had held out two visual choices? Would he have looked at the right visual choice then? Would he have reached toward the one that he really wanted? Or would he have rejected the one? I've seen some kids who just get in the habit of protesting. And instead of saying they want the orange juice, they'll shove the milk out of the way. And you know that they want the juice because they've slapped your hand out or turned away from the milk. And you think, well, that's been, the, that's been something that they've been reinforced for doing. They know that they can protest effectively. They've learned how to, or they're just working on saying no. And so they learn how to do that. So can you see through that whole progression how a mom can take something like noticing her child is getting a little bit antsy and he's looking around, how she can shape that, how she can see if he's looking toward the kitchen and she can see if he's looking, you know, a lot of times it's looking for her. Can she do some things that, again, she leads him through this progression? And that's what, a, that's what parents need you as a therapist to do. But, guys, you cannot teach a parent how to do something that you do not know how to do. And so you've really got to think about this. You know, 
even non-verbally, how can that child make that choice? And see, sometimes we as therapists, we jump straight into, well, I'm going to get Pexco and I'm going to make the picture exchange communication system or I'm going to get him a speech generating device and every time he wants a drink, I can teach him how to do that. You absolutely can. And those are very worthwhile goals. And those are things that I work on all day, every day too. But to teach a mom how to really, really use her own instincts and to teach a mom how to incrementally lead her child toward making a visual and and gestural request. I mean, can you see how powerful that is? But as a therapist, you've got to really think about these things, and you've got to really be kind of in the heat of the moment. And again, you don't have to be seeing a kid at home to figure this stuff out. You know, I I talk to parents about this all day, every day, in our uh, free speech therapy clinic here in Central Kentucky. We, We talk about that kind of thing with parents, and even though I'm not seeing kids at home, I'm certainly saying, hey, now, he's doing this right here, and that makes me, let me ask you a question about him at home. And so then you can ask some questions like that. You can say, you know, he's really looking around, and he's really walking over to things he wants, but he doesn't quite know how to initiate this with me other than his physical body. I bet you notice this at home, too. And they say, yeah, I sure do. And so then you walk through that with, well, here's what we can do. When you get over to what he wants, don't be quite so, so, uh, fast to open that let's give him a little bit of time let's see what he's going to do after that and so again it's just this simple change in approach that makes a real difference with that and again it's being hyper aware as a therapist what you're really really looking for in a kid and what you're really really teaching a kid how to do and not jumping way too far ahead of that developmental sequence and again we talked about AAC like with a kid like this it might be so easy to get pecs going and so easy to get um, a speech generating device going, you need to be doing that too. And you need to be teaching a parent how to do this non-verbally just with eye gaze and gestures and, again, that physical proximity. All right, so another thing that we need to be sure that we're going to talk about here in this last few minutes is how to sabotage a child's environment to increase her opportunities to initiate requests. And I gave this example in last week's show, and oh my goodness, I hope the mom that I talked about in that show still listens. Her son's, gosh, he's probably seven now but I hope that she'll hear that show because I talked about that sweet little boy and he had a really serious uh, neurodevelopmental issue he had some genetic abnormalities but one thing that his mom did who's a speech pathologist is they really worked on using gestures as his way to initiate and I'll just tell y'all I've talked a lot about eye gaze today and how to how to use that for our kids who are really physically have some pretty significant physical and motoric challenges. But more often than anything, even with those kinds of kids, I'm working on gestures, 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 especially when there's no autism. Because when a child is at risk for autism, you know, one of the core diagnostic features of autism is that they have difficulty understanding and using nonverbal communication. So if they're on the spectrum, if I think they're on the spectrum, gestures are going to be harder. We're still going to work on it, but I know, oh my goodness, it's going to be hard. We better get PECS going or we better get an SGD going or something else but at the same time if a kid even if they're just significant cognitive challenges even when they have had big time motor delays let's say they haven't even walked till they were that they haven't walked till they were three I still am going to work on pointing and reaching I'm still going to work on that child moving to what he wants in that physical proximity because that is a kid's best most functional most practical way to get his needs met at home and again we can do all the AAC and I'm totally on board with all that totally but we've got to be teaching the more practical real life everyday way to do it too all right so let's talk about sabotage so what are some things that we can do now 
You might have heard this term as a speech language pathologist in grad school as communication temptations, anything you want to call it, withholding. It doesn't really matter what you call it. The point here is you are setting up a situation where you are putting something that a child wants so that he doesn't have immediate access to it as a way to create an opportunity for him to communicate. And that's what's missing with our children who are not initiating. They don't naturally like a typically developing kid or like a kid with another kind of language delay that doesn't affect their ability to interact socially or their ability to show you what they want, it, that's missing in a kid with an initiation problem. So we've got to set it up and we have to be so obvious and so intentional and so purposeful about it. So, And it's beyond just saying, put all your toys in containers up high so that a kid has to look for that. A lot of times then our kids don't even see it. <laughs> it's just gone. It's out of sight, out of mind. You've got to put it right in front of them in a container that they can't open or maybe even in a container that they can open. But you've got to get that motivation going. You've got to get that desire created so that they have a reason to initiate. I mean, I do things like... Um, for kids that, again, have not had big uh, motor involvements, they're just not initiating because of their cognitive issues or their social issues or whatever, I mean, I might give their siblings a snack that they want, and I know that's going to create an opportunity for them to get mad <laughs> and want that snack too. And again, we're not fostering sibling rivalry here or making it being mean-spirited about it. We're just creating an opportunity for a child to want to request. I, you know, if I, if I know a kid likes M&Ms, I'll sit and eat two or three M&Ms right in front of him to see, is he going to try to ask me for these? Is he going to reach for these? Is he going to, you know, I don't want him throwing himself backwards, having a full-on meltdown. But at the same time, I do want to give him a reason to communicate. And back to the story of that other child that I was talking about, they did such a great job of just, because he had had so many physical and cognitive and language issues they really had not ever taught him to initiate like they had their his younger brother and so they really just started like leaving food he was a, he was a kid that loved to eat and drink so they which is easy when we get that right because we've got a number one motivator here a physical need they started just leaving his drink cup in the just out of reach on the dining room table so that he would, he would have to at least walk up to the table. And then they taught him how to point. And how did they teach him how to point? They all modeled pointing. They worked on it all day, every day. Mom, you know, would take his little hand and help him reach and help him try to get that going. They did activities to isolate his index finger, to get his, get his little uh, finger going. And, again, she had friends who were OTs, and he was in OT, so that was a lot. She had a lot of resources. She had some help. But at the same time, they had to create that opportunity. And he was like five. He was almost five, if I remember correctly, before he really, really learned how to do that. And guess what? Once he learned how to initiate, he learned how to use gestures at the same time, and that little boy then started to talk. He began to combine his vocalizations with his gestures. And this is how this works, guys. But it all started with a parent saying, you know, and this is, she was on the show. I wish I had looked up the podcast so that you could go back and listen to this. This is when I first released Let's Talk About Talking in 2017. She 
learned with this 11 skills, hey, I'm working on the wrong stuff. And she was a speech pathologist. Now, she worked with adults, so it's kind of a different job. But at the same time, she had to really isolate this set of skills so that she could say, this is what's missing. And so instead of working on vocalizing and instead of working on him imitating she worked a lot on imitation but here's the thing that she really really worked on it's teaching him how to initiate and guys had just opened the door to everything like i said he learned that's what we do when we when a kid learns how to use eye gaze or physical proximity as a nonverbal way to initiate or to make a request then what do you do you bump them up to that next little thing or you either go up or you go wide <laughs> do you know the old song deep and wide it's what you do you either go up that developmental ladder and teach them something different but if you can't get them to that next level you go wide. So you teach them, I'm going to teach them how to reach. I'm going to teach them how to do gimme fingers. I'm going to teach them how to point. We're going to work on all of this, the physical proximity thing. We're going to work on standing over there. And then once he's got some of these gestures and he's over there, then we're going to learn how to, uh, 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 how to grunt, how to whine, how to vocalize, how to, ah, do those things that we hear typically developing kids do. And listen, just because a kid is five or six and he's never done those things, he's got to pick up those skills. This was a kid who already had a device that it wasn't really working that great for. He already had a sign or two. wasn't really working that great for. He needed to learn how to initiate. And so that's my point about all these 11 skills. You can still teach a kid some of these things, and there's still something missing that you think, what in the world is it? It's this. It's one of these other 11 skills that you haven't quite put your finger on. So that's why getting uh, this resource would be such a fabulous idea for you. All right. So I am so happy that we have finished this series from show 385 to show 396. We've gotten this 11 pre-linguistic skills at All Toddlers Master. We've worked through all 11 of these skills. And as a therapist, if you have missed some of these, you go back and you pick these shows up. And remember that you can get um, the chart when you get Let's Talk About Talking, but you can get a super handout for every single show, uh, the overview show, as well as skills 1 through 11. When you are a therapist, you can get an hour continuing education and this fabulous handout to help you remember how to teach your parent how to do this or how to teach a student. If you're supervising students or mentoring other therapists, your CFs, you can teach them how to do this and share this information with them for only $5. And so that is a great deal. So you can get information about that at teachmetotalk.com, which is my website. And this was podcast number 396. And the credit for that should be available within a week or so. All right. So that's all for today's show and for this series. My name is Laura Mize. I'm a pediatric speech language pathologist. And please accept my thanks for being with me throughout this show and this whole entire series. And I hope that you'll join us for more continuing education opportunities at teachmetotalk.com.